0: Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrew and I'm here with Nick Hare, Peter Coghill and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing outdoor hot tubs. Nick Lead us in.
1: Yeah, well I I went to Iceland uh recently and one of the more enjoyable elements of being in Iceland uh was that they had uh these hot tubs outdoors at the hotel where you could just sit in the hot tub and look at the scenery. Uh big barren, wide open landscape uh of Iceland. And um and uh it was uh amazingly good fun. Complete I thought to myself being outside in a hot tub, regardless of how hot the hot tub is, uh, you know the fact that it's it's snowing or whatever is is gonna make the experience a bit miserable. But I was completely wrong. Um, it, it's really nice being in a hot hot water outside, regardless of what the weather's like. is great. And uh, my next thought was, why don't we have that in the UK? Why don't we have hot tubs? In the-? And the answer is that uh, actually in Iceland they have. Um, you know they've got more or less free heating free hot water because of all the volcanoes so most most places just get just get free um, free hot water out of the ground and and use that you know Uh, we don't have that so Iceland basically has these has this fantastic outdoor um, bathing which is effectively not it's completely cost ineffective for us you know to keep a hot tub permanently going um, at the height of winter, uh, which is a real shame, but it did get me thinking you know how much actually of let you, we, you could you might go there and think oh that 's interesting that Icelanders have this sort of cultural thing, which is sitting in a hot tub um in in the snow that 's very nice why you know we should have that cultural thing too, uh, but actually it's only something which is available because because of the the fact that they, they don 't have this resource constraint that that we do have and it got me wondering about what what other things we would do if you took away constraints um, and the extent to which you know the culture we have uh, and w- what we consider normal is actually instead is, is just driven by um, you know by the need to get over resource uh, constraints
0: yeah what, what what constraints did you think about or what sort of free freedom from what constraints did you? Well, your mind I think I think you, you
1: you don't have to look round very hard to see examples where, when constraints have been removed, culture has has adapted fairly quickly. Um, you know, you 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 think about you know Britain's food culture uh you know in the 1950s very heavily conditioned by rationing um which probably you know led to a, a belief that um british people can't cook or like bland food or in some way you know uh, massively lack uh, kind of um decent um you know Coloring decent expertise. culinary expertise um Uh, but then you know wind wind the clock forward 50 years um and massively lower transport costs and and actually it turns out we uh we do like nice food we just didn't have very nice ingredients you know we didn't we just didn't have the resources you know so there's an example where our food culture has has um you know has has massively flourished because we've removed this constraint um things like you know the way that we um interact you know socially has changed enormously because of the internet um the the fact that we you know used to uh you know there was a thing called keeping in touch which you either did or didn't you know you left school you kept in touch with some people and so you had you know your school friends which would be a small group of you you would do things like go to reunions and reconnect with people i don't think that exists anymore you know people there's no such thing as 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 falling out of touch um you know everyone you the people you went to school with you more or less keep up with on on facebook for the rest of your lives um you know there's another example of of where we've removed the constraint so what happens uh you know what happens when we take away what what would happen if we if for example we had no more disease how would it change the way we behaved what would happen if we took away um you know if we if we if we gave everyone completely free energy uh i i just and it's speculative really but what You know, what would happen?
0: Well, it makes you think, uh, well, so so to summarise, that behaviour, when we look at it, can be surprisingly driven by constraints. Um, And actually, it's interesting sometimes that a constraint is removed um, and you can immediately see some changes in behaviour. But I can think of one constraint which is removed that I think probably hasn't resulted in that or not as quickly as people might have thought. So going back to your example of, of wartime rationing, I'm thinking of of the of of licensing hours in the UK at the times that pubs shut, um, which so many uh, people visiting these shores find very odd. That uh, when a bell goes at ten to eleven in a pub, and then again at eleven, um, and then suddenly that everyone, what's that about? You know, well, that's time to stop drinking. And, and go go
1: back to your munitions plant exactly. and start working on the munitions you yeah. need for the Western Front. Yeah.
0: And so, famously, licensing laws were changed. I think it was under uh, Blair, Blair government, government, I think. Yeah. Um, and sort of, and one, and, and so one of the behaviours that people have said, oh look, the reason why British binge drink is because they have to, they've got to fit in their drinking before eleven o'clock, and so. I think maybe policymakers envisage some sort of, you know, transformation into a cafe society where we all sit around sipping a little bit of wine until the early hours of the morning. But all that happened is that pubs were open longer, and people still continued their binge drinking because the theory is either that's what they're used to, or maybe just genetically that's what British do. But and I th- I think that still hasn't really changed much. Yeah. This sort of, you know, drinking fast. So anyway, um, who wants to come in on something and here? I think the up- the uptake um, let's
2: have Peter, yeah? the uptake of extended licenses hasn't been that great as well. There's still lots of pubs that choose to close at 11 because it suits them and their staff and and their clientele because they're, they're used to this this culture of of been drinking before 11 o'clock and then getting up and still ha- being able to function in the morning because they've got a, a more or less full night service. yeah exactly and i feel like i don't want to be drinking to one but so eleven thirty, just right thank you very
3: much uh chris yeah well i, I was just going to say that actually i think um we we've obviously adapted to to scarcity in all all kinds of resources and we seem particularly poorly equipped to um to cope constructively with the removal of that scarcity so food is a great example you know o- obesity epidemic you know is is uh, s- uh, sort of spread across the western world and and now the developing world um if you look at um Societies where, uh, like gambling restrictions, again uh, another great initiative of the um, of the Blair government to to remove um, the restrictions on on gambling, and what happens? More people gamble, and you get more people addicted to, to gambling. This notion that oh, if only we didn't have the restraints, people would would self manage much more sensibly, doesn't seem to be borne out by the evidence of the removal of restrictions. And so I suppose I'm. Um, it's it's almost as if we're when we're just not mentally equipped to deal with um a surfeit of of a given resource and and you know looking forward or what to me what will be interesting is effectively we're getting towards the stage where there's unlimited processing power for for computers what on earth will we put you know so far what have we put it towards have we put it towards Constructive, uh, you know, well-meaning things. In some cases, yes, but mostly it's spent on on computer games and and taking pictures of cats, which so, people do enjoy. Yeah. I mean, that does
1: produce utility. I think there's a there's a, a good. Wait, hold t- on. So I oh. want Peter to come in. I think he's. Right, yes.
2: I think a lot of these problems caused by the rural constraints are probably generational. So it took a while. It took a generation or two to get over the removal of rationing in the UK so my parents were always wanting me not waste about wasting food and it, because it was precious when they were growing up because they were still uh they still had rationing imposed but um my generation and my children's generation probably will will have developed a a a, a responsible attitude towards food where we don't waste food for not wasting food's sake not because of some external constraint. but we are getting fatter you know, so we, are. we yeah we we are, but I think we will learn. Society will adapt to getting fatter and maybe getting fatter won't be such a bad thing. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll develop cures for obesity related related diseases, or society will sort of begin to self police, and being being fat will be. Uh, will be undesirable, and so so people take more responsibility for themselves, and they they learn to do that. Okay, I want to bring in Nick in a second, but a couple of things, two sides there. Um, So
0: Chris saying, no, we need some sort of benevolent um, dictatorship in place that telling us all what's good for us and we need to follow that. And 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 uh, Peter saying no we're gonna be self policing eventually. Slight surprise there hearing about your children, by the way. Um so I don't know if there's something going on in uh, the Coghill household. Hyper- we hypothetical know. children. Uh, oh hypothetical right. children, okay. Uh so
1: Nick, uh wade in. Well I was just gonna mention it might be a good time to mention Chesterton's fence, which um you know is a is a popular kind of uh well, it's a popular thought experiment, I suppose um certainly in the in the sort of rationalist community, but it basically is the the idea that you you know you're walking through the countryside and you' come across this fence in the in the middle of the lane where you 're walking you think well, this fence is a bit inconvenient doesn 't seem to be doing anything why don 't we get rid of the fence and that 's and you know Chesterton said no if you 've come across a fence you should as- assume it 's doing something uh and don 't remove it until you know what it 's meant to be doing and i I think often we don 't actually necessarily know what the operative constraints are and you know removing um you we might have said look the you know it turned, the the constraint uh of licensing hours is making people binge drink but actually you know it turns out it's some it's something else making people binge drink if that's the case i don't know uh you know or uh, and um you know it might be that actually uh it it's, it may not just be a generational thing i mean you can think of you know culture so what it is that how it is that people behave the kinds of things people consider normal uh will eventually adapt but it's, it takes a long time um you know it takes several years for people to adapt around constraints um another, another example i that i sort of think about is um the nhs which you know when people uh the first generation to get free health care were extremely sparing with it because it was seen as such a privilege, you know, and people were, um, you know, very reluctant to get the doctor. Now, now people have grown up with free healthcare; it, They treat it like it's free and, you know, it's oversubscribed. People you go to the doctor f- for things that they probably oughtn't to. Likewise with education. You know, we have um, fr- free education and the first generation to get that were you know in in awe uh, and their parents were in awe of the privilege you know that that people had fought to have free education for years and now um you know now it's seen as a kind of uh kind of right and you know people um people perhaps don't don't um you know, treat it as the as 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 valuable as it actually
0: is. Constraints help in, um inform value. I guess.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's an interesting thought experiment to explore. You know, the an extreme. So, assuming a hundred years from now, we're living in a a world where everything is provided. You can go to a sort of a wall, a hole in the wall, and ask it for anything, and you will get it. There's no there's, there's free energy. There's free food. everything no, and no one's starving. If they they are starving, they're choosing to be starving um what what's the human psychology like in such a world where we don't have to worry about anything everyone's perfectly safe everyone's perfectly fed
0: well the answer is star trek right because that's exactly what happens in star trek the next generation where the is what are they called the federation um which governments governs the whole of 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 the of the world um and all the things you've just described have come about there are no material wants anymore um, and so, and the answer for them is they go off and explore space, mm. pretty much. Um, and then all you've got to worry about is Klingons and so on. Um, but anyway, I digress.
3: Chris. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, even even in the absence of uh, want, I think I think we're still driven. It's it, it's the extent to which we're driven by our evolutionary psychology, uh, and I think we're still driven by an acquisitiveness you know that the, the, we would still stockpile even in an, even in a or we'd still seek to get more and more of something even when we have enough of it and we're also driven by sort of short-termism of um let's let's consume it now because it might not it might not be there in the future and I think that's that's a, a dangerous combination to have surplus and acquisitiveness and and short-termism usually doesn't lead to a good a good resolution and yeah um, we, we that's... all end
2: up we end up drunk and fat or something yes yeah yeah i mean i i'm i'm optimistic that i mean i'm, I'm sure i, I think you know, even when during rationing there were fat people who 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 were able to get hold of enough food and became fat and they were all going to be fatties without the constraint <laughs> so i think there will always be those people who probably need more of a sort of mummy state to look after them of some kind but I think I have faith that the hu- the human animal will, uh, and it's not necessarily a good thing. But I have faith that they that that, that we will be we extremely inventive in in finding new kinds of constraint, new things to find exciting. So example would be you know extreme sports exist because we have spare time and we have a relatively safe life and we still feel a need for a bit of thrill, a bit of threat to life, and a bit of fun. Um, in a, in per- in the perfect technical utopia. Um, we will we'll find new things which are, uh, which are precious and and new things to sort of get excited and fight over uh, and the Starfleet at the next generation their their one thing is exploration and development of the self and learning and 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 and, and, leisure. and, and leisure so so that because those are the, their scarcity is driven by the lifespan that you have the, the time that you've got yeah i think the the sort of other things that
1: are uh, inherently limited um apart from time. It could be a technological constraint. We don't know. We might invent something like in the HG Wells story the new accelerator you know which sort of allows you to experience things at vastly higher rates so you could perhaps you know have a have a have a week off in 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 uh you know a couple of seconds or something um but you know that so time is a pretty irreducible constraint but also status certainly for humans very important and not and that's inherently limited you not everyone could be high status you know there's uh, uh so I, I mean we will there's always going to be something which is limited um, you know, they they cannot... I, I mean, I think, you know, unless someone can come up with a more inventive sci-fi scenario, um, we'll, we'll always find something to compete over.
0: Oh, we're close to um, finishing off here, but I want to bring this full circle. And actually, it does tie in. I want to talk about constraints and status, as you talked about there, um, but also perception. Um, because when you were talking to me about um, being out in Iceland, sitting in your nice hot uh, tub, thinking... Um, all sorts of interesting thoughts. I couldn't help but imagine you with sort of much more longer hair and mm. a bit skinnier and with a slightly redder face. And maybe the
2: a big ginger beard and a battle axe next door. Well,
0: no, actually, I'm going in a different way. You, you reminded me of uh, of a Japanese snow monkey, of a, of a Japanese macaque, right? Which are famous for sitting around in their hot pools, their natural hot pools, for the same reasons that, that it occurs in, in, in Iceland, Right. Um and that made me think about certain things. But do we know about do you how much do you know about those monkeys and why they do this? Well, I've seen pictures of them. Do they do they not just do it cuz it's cuz it's nice? No. So, here's the thing that's quite interesting is um world famous, right? Lots of people there taking pictures of cute monkeys. Okay, but did you know that only certain monkeys are allowed into the hot into their natural the, hot tub? The top
1: monkeys, presumably. Yeah, the
0: top monkeys. Um, and there's, I, I, I'm guessing that there's probably enough room for all of them in there. But let's suppose for a moment that there's not. Um, and you you only get to go in the hot tub on the basis of your hierarchy within within the troop. Okay, and there's lots of photos and or, or, or film of of monkeys trying to sneak in, and other monkeys chucking them out. Okay. And so I, I guess it's yeah, even I guess you know even what looks like paradise and a lovely sort of life for these macaques is not, and is still driven by constraints and in, and the connection with status here as well.
1: Yeah, I mean I, we were able to fit uh, me uh, and my partner and, t- and our two children in comfortably into a hot tub, but if three other families turned up, I think I'd I think there'd be it would have been a different story. Yeah, we would have been certainly fighting over the hot tub space. Um, but- you know, but in I, the
3: in had there been three three hot tubs,
1: there were then, actually three hot tubs. Okay,
3: let's. <laughs> had there been nine hot tubs, nine, yeah, yeah, then uh, you would have been. Um, you you wouldn't have needed to. And I suppose I suppose does does status have a purpose in the in the absence of resource scarcity? Because after all, status exists within communal, um, you know, communal species in order. To um, give access either to mates or to food or whatever it might be, so that it can be decided when there's only so much, who gets first, who gets first dibs. I
1: think that's a really interesting question. We ought to have another separate podcast about actually. You know, is how how uh, inherent is status as a thing? I mean, is status actually just a cultural thing that we use to solve problems of resource scarcity, or or is it something which is you know which we inherently want? um and would seek you know and would emerge in some way even in a world where you know actually those things were free
3: well yeah i i mean in in response to that i i i think it um it relates to this this question that we've been talking about th- throughout this podcast which is that um we probably would feel the need to uh invent status in some way in in the absence of resource scarcity um, but we wouldn't need it anymore, and I think we're we're driven. A lot of our behaviour is driven by what we what we feel comfortable imposing, not by actually the constraints to which we're we're subject. But I we mean, also, the fact.
0: It, sorry, it's an organising principle as well, right? Um, but Nick, well, it's just we
1: don't need to go hunting anymore or kill things but we play computer games where we do do that because we just like the activity. I wonder if people actually like status seeking. Yeah. You know if actually people find that inherently enjoyable. Um and I I mean, you know, so competing to be the best at a computer game for example is an example of something completely uh you know with no actual real world consequences if you like, but which where we just simply enjoy the the competition.
2: I I don't know the I can't I can't remember the reference, but there there has been some good psych, cognitive psychological work into how Humans perceive rewards, and um, particularly with monetary and acquisitional rewards, uh, the, the the we are pretty poor at uh, understanding the actual value in terms of say say it's a monetary reward in terms of what that reward will buy you in the future. So the, the things you could the experiences and the things you could have in the future, we concentrate rather on the face value of things and seek external cues as to how much that's worth. So there there might be something quite hard coded in our brains about how you know if you if you if you're given a reward of if you're paid 20 pounds an hour and I'm only paid 15 pounds an hour and we do the same job I feel affronted even though 15 pounds might be sufficient for everything I need. So we we look for we we look for these external cues as to how much a, a thing is worth even though it's, Yeah, you know,
1: we we're, we're much much better off than uh, your average medieval king but who wouldn't want to change places with a medieval king i mean you know that would clearly be brilliant quite right
0: talking of kings um i mean you sort of threw me off kilter there slightly uh, peter um so nick here sitting in a in a in a in a hot tub in 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 iceland viking or monkey which is he uh, what do you think, Peter?
2: Well, I think he's a bit too Norman to be a Viking. Mm. The Normans were Vikings originally.
0: Are they were. Well, that's well, yeah, well interjected. Mm.
1: I'm actually really more of an Anglo-Saxon, but uh, but I mean so so that puts me in a in a uh, you know we're still talking about basically the Norse family,
0: I'm just one trying way to, or the other. I'm just trying to uh, imagine. No, you... it's
1: not Mediterranean. I'm not Mediterranean. That that's definitely I'm that's definitely def- in the north north northern Europe camp here. Yeah,
3: Chris, monkey or or Viking? I think I think he's got to be a cheeky monkey, hasn't he?
0: <laughs> On that note, uh, we'll 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 wrap up. Thank you as always for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Peter Coghill, Nick Hare, and Chris Rag. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time. Bye-bye.